Blog Talk Radio. And there we are. Hello. Good evening, everybody. All right. What do we got going on here? Uh, boom. Huh? On here? Yes. Okay. Just make sure. Because we've had that feedback before. It's not pretty. No, it's not. <laughs> so I, I have, in my not so infinite wisdom, managed to avoid that this evening. But. <laughs> Sorry, my energy is very low right now. It's, it's, things have slowed down a little bit for us. I mean, it is most of the way through November at this point. So, but yeah, so finally, uh, you're finally starting to slow down, catch your breath. Um, and here's Lee. Hello. And they're eggnog in because it's eggnog season. Yeah, the eggnog people. And uh, yes, I. Doing the whole gingerbread stout and eggnog thing. Yeah. It is, what about the portion? I use I usually do about fifty fifty. Oh, gotcha. It's it's delicious, but you can do it to taste. Mm. I'm bored. I'm drinking tea with honey. It's all right. More booze for me. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so yeah. Oh, and uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So well, we got a. Uh, what did you? That, that, that's a, got our, our, our friend uh, Sam Chase up at National Nightmares up in Washington, D.C. So he's here with uh, here checking in this evening. And uh, yeah, so glad to, glad to have you all here. And uh, yep, uh, yep, Roberta, the, we'll see if the kitty cats make an appearance tonight. He is over here snuggled in a blanket. Yeah, and I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that the other three are probably all snuggled up in bed. Uh, even though we have a fire going in the fireplace, it's, um, it's chilly. It is a little chilly. It cooled off a, a, a tad bit, so. Um, so we don't have to see this now. No, so we'll take it. We are not Buffalo right now, so there is that. The blue is not the boy. Yes. That's adorable. I yep. haven't seen pictures though. But <laughs> it all takes place in the bed. Oh. We, so. we don't photograph the bed. Yeah, so <laughs> you can go and take a take a picture of that later on yeah, in the chairs. Yeah, it's in this, it's in this meeting. I don't have to be. <laughs> so, but yeah, hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody is um, getting ready for uh, the, uh, the the Thanksgiving holiday this weekend. And uh, whether, you're, you know, whether you're traveling or staying home and just kind of chilling on your own, whatever have you, I hope you uh, are able to just kind of enjoy and take some time off and relax for a couple of days. I'm hanging out with my employers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeding my employees. Well, How yeah. about that? Yeah, they're going to be up here a couple times this week, along with a couple other folks as well. So, but yes, we'll be we doing all. We have Friendsgiving. Friendsgiving on, which we will be doing on Thanksgiving Day. Mm-hmm. So, because, yeah. Because we're families the week after. That's how things pan out this year. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, with all that said, it is. Um, how do you do Hampshire time? How do you do Hampshire time? Yeah. So. Uh, as we've been talking about for like the over two and a half years now, we started diving in and um, started. We I, I have started the state wander. Yeah, started the state wander. I'm not sure what which state did we do first? Florida, I think. Part of Florida, or was it New York? I think it was New York. We did. We've done Finger Lakes and Northern New York. Yeah. So we've actually done New York a couple times, technically. Uh, and we and we've done New England. Yeah, we did New England, which was very general, and technically New Hampshire is a part of New England. Yeah. So New England might be what I think. Yeah, and 
uh, we have done Kentucky, we did Hawaii, we've done Alaska. Um, have we done Virginia? I, we have not actually done Virginia yet. No. Okay. No, that's yes and no. I mean, we, we kind of got a little wanderlust when we started mm -hmm. doing these. So, but I'm sure that we will be getting back to uh, uh, getting back to doing the words. We'll do Virginia at some point because eventually we plan to get around and do all 50 states. That is. So, yes, that's just the, the, the tip of the iceberg, as it were. Yeah, and so this is just a hint. We'll get back to actually doing more states in the new year because, of course, in December we do Christmas stories. Yep. So, so. yeah, next month, just a very, very high-level sneak preview. There will be two Christmassy type episodes. One of them will be hauntings around the Christmas holiday, which will actually be. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and then we'll do more Victorian ghost stories. Yeah, and another episode of Victorian ghost stories. So we'll be looking forward to doing that next month. But, but anyways, for tonight, Hunts New Hampshire. And uh, yeah, so let's go ahead, we'll, we'll dive in. But while the leaves are still dropping from trees here in Virginia, the state of New Hampshire is quickly dropping into the dead of winter. This mountainous state has a proud history that drastically outweighs its relatively small size. It was the, uh, the first of the colonies to declare independence from Great Britain, and today citizens still exhibit a stubbornness that makes the state motto, live free or die, ring just as true as ever. In fact, it would be fair to say that some granite staters of generations past may be too stubborn to rest in peace. Our first stop, we are going to be going to the very narrow sliver of uh, land, uh, land where New Hampshire actually touches the Atlantic Ocean. Somehow they kind of got a little shortchanged on that. I think they don't have any more than like 20 miles of coastline. Oh, no, it's a very fast drive line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they got kind of squeezed out a little bit by Maine and Massachusetts. But they do have some ocean front. And uh, it's there that we find the uh, city of Portsmouth, and it's a long Pleasant Avenue that stands a mansion that was built back in 1763 by Henry Appleton. Now, Appleton subsequently sold this mansion to Mark Wentworth, one of New Hampshire's wealthiest merchants and landowners the following year. The Wentworths were a family of means, a fact that was perhaps best exemplified by the appointment of John's son, or Mark's son, John, as the royal governor of New Hampshire in 1767. For his part, Mark occupied the mansion on Pleasant Street until his departure on the eve of the American Revolution in 1775. Though he didn't live there during the war, he did maintain ownership until he transferred the property to his daughter, Anna Fisher, in 1770. The home was sold outside the Wentworth family in 1797, but it was later purchased by Ebenezer Wentworth in 1810. The mansion would remain a home for the Wentworth family until the early 1900s. About this time, subsequent generations of the Wentworths adapted the property for use as an elder care facility, a role it continues to serve today as Wentworth Senior Living. Initially named Mark H. Wentworth's House for the Chronically Invalid, it was privately owned, uh, privately owned facility caring for the aging until the 1990s when it was repurposed to care for elderly patients of the state. For the last 20 years, both patients and staff have reported a lingering presence and physical phenomena that includes locked doors opening, disembodied footsteps, and objects moving around on their own. Having now served as an elderly care facility for over a century, it is a fact that many people have passed away within the Wentworth House. 
And that's what many people believe is the driving force behind the paranormal encounters that are rife in the facility today. Some staff members have even reported encountering a full apparition that would sometimes have a few words to say before fading away. Staffers will try to avoid going into the older parts of the building during the dead of the night unless it's absolutely necessary. Those working the graveyard shift will sometimes be at their duty stations as they listen to the sounds of doors opening and closing on their own in empty, darkened corridors, sometimes accompanied by the hushed voices of people who are not truly there. That said, it's reportedly not a bad place to live or work, for that matter. None of the activity seems to be malicious, even if it can be a bit unsettling for some people. Others take a different view and note that for those in the twilight of their lives, this can be seen as a sign that there may be another life for them just beyond the veil. So, take it for what you will. A couple of different ways to look at it. Mm-hmm. Another thing I want to go over. So, we're gonna, any questions before we start? Uh, I saw this thing popping up. What's that mean? Looks like no questions. Okay. Yes. So we're going to jump over to Kimball Castle in Guilford, New Hampshire. Um, this is a lakefront property, and it's the former summer home estate of the railroad magnate Benjamin Ames Kimball. It's in the town of Guilford on a hill overlooking the largest lake in New Hampshire. Like, what if you see that? Um, portions of the Kimball original 300-acre state have been subdivided, of course, still left, but much of it still remains conservation land managed by the town now. The castle was once one of the sections that was sold off and is now privately owned, but that hasn't stopped the tales of the castle from being passed down through the years. First, historic context, historic context of course. Benjamin Kimball commissioned the castle as a state outbuilding beginning in 1894 and used it as his summer estate until his death in 1920. His home was conquered. <clears throat> the castle was built by stonemasons using local granite and materials imported from Europe. In 1960, Charlotte Kimball, Benjamin Kimball's daughter-in-law and the last remaining heir, died and in her will donated the land to the Mary Mitchell Humane Foundation to manage the property as a wildlife preserve and sanctuary. Over the next several years, the funds left to carry out the wishes of Charlotte Kimball went missing. Then, while the Mary Mitchell Humane Foundation attempted to sell the entire estate. During the 1960s and 70s, the property fell into disrepair as the buildings became subject to extensive vandalism and theft. A group of concerned citizens petitioned New Hampshire's Attorney General's Office of charitable trust and investigation into the missing funds ensued. As a settlement of the lawsuit, Attorney General and Belknap County Superior Court ordered that the town take over the, as trustees of Charlotte's estate and carry out the tenants of her will. Town of Delford took over the tr- as trustees in 1981 and performed a study about how best to carry out Charlotte's wishes. The master plan recommended that the land be subdivided and a portion of the land, including the castle, be sold to a private party for commercial development with the intent that all the proceeds of the sales would be used to replenish the missing funds and carry out Charlotte's wishes of managing the remaining land still held at trust. Proposals have been made but not acted upon to develop the land, uh, the castle into a resort hotel. The castle and its associated outbuildings were listed on the National Register of Historic Places 
1982. However, the castle has been condemned by the town of Guilford as unsafe. The day stands as a fenced-in husk, awaiting for whatever fate it may eventually be subjected to. Over the decades, the Kindle Castle has been the subject of numerous haunting tales. The castle's current owners report seeing the apparition of a tall, shadowy man and hearing the sounds of horses kicking and stamping in the empty stables. They also report cold spots, flooding lights, and doors opening and closing on their own. Some of the unexplained phenomenon has been uh, liked and, oh, sorry, some of the unexplained phenomenon has been reported at the Kimball Castle, including the loudest unexplained noises, lights turning on and off by themselves, and a couple of antique clocks that were long since dead and have suddenly decided to start working again. The presence in the castle is decidedly unwelcoming, and it's apparent that someone or something wants to be left alone there. Theories about the source of the homies generally revolve around Kimball, as they were the only family to live in this elaborate home and who could blame them for being unhappy with the property situation. Their final wishes for the estate were not honored in full, and their one-time home has been subjected to excessive abuse before the current owners stepped in and tried to salvage what was left. For our part, we hope the castle can be eventually restored to the point where the visitors will be welcomed again, and perhaps the spirits will eventually be able to rest, or at least become more welcoming. Maybe having some slight technical difficulties this evening. It seems like we got frozen there for a second. Uh, looks like everything was recording okay here, but I don't know if it was getting broadcast okay. So, uh, hope you can bear with us, and uh, hopefully it's at least going to record correctly and be posted correctly later. So, we shall we shall see. But in the meantime, thanks for uh, sticking it out with us, uh, and hopefully that will be the limit of our issues for tonight. Knock, knocking on wood. So, we are going to go ahead and swing back down to the coastal region and we'll land in the city of Dover where we can find the historic cotton mill known as Kochiko Mill No. 1. This large five-story building was built in 1890 and was used to manufacture cotton fabric. On January 26th of 1907, the mill would become the site of one of Dover's most notable industrial tragedies a day where everything that could go wrong did. On a bitterly cold day when the mercury reached 25 degrees below zero, a fire broke out on the third floor. The sprinkler system was turned off for repairs, so the fire spread quickly, trapping many workers on the fourth and fifth floors. The power was cut, leaving these employees to escape through the darkness and smoke. The mill only had one fire escape, so many people were injured as they left from the upper windows. The firefighters that responded from Portsmouth and Dover battled the fire for 36 hours. Their efforts were hampered by ladders that were too short to reach the upper floors and freezing temperatures that froze the firefighting equipment. Making matters worse still, several buggies driven in by sightseers cut several of the fire hoses. In the end, six lives were lost and the building was partially destroyed. Three stories collapsed into each other, taking tons of machinery down with them. Just days before this fire, the mutual insurance company had declared the mill excellent when it came to safety. Hey, bless you. Thank you. Theories about the cause of the fire ran rampant, but no official cause was ever established. The mills were eventually reconstructed and various manufacturing continued for decades. 
Eventually, the mills were decommissioned and have since been renovated into offices, apartments, and other various businesses. The modern building is considered to be extremely haunted, activity that many credit to the 1907 fire. While the fire is likely one of the leading causes, various eyewitness accounts seem to point to the building having a portal that allows a variety of spirits to come and go. Two common reports are of strange lights being seen in the upper floors of the building when it has been empty. Before the more modern renovations, witnesses reported seeing a light on in one of the basements at a time when the entrances to these rooms are blocked off and no one is present in them. In more recent times, many people have reported hearing disembodied voices, especially in the two towers that house the stairwells. One eerie reoccurring report involves people hearing the old mill's machinery start up or shut down, this despite there no longer being any milling equipment remaining in the building today. One maintenance manager at the old mill shared his bizarre experience as he was covering a night shift for the janitor that was on vacation. It was 3 a.m. and he was on the third floor cleaning a restroom when he became uneasy. He then heard a giggle. Knowing he was the only one in the building, his blood turned cold. When he stopped and listened, the sound stopped, but as soon as he moved again, he heard more laughter. This time, it was two distinct voices laughing. Both sounded like small children. Unnerved, he left the area quickly. Later that morning, when sunlight streamed in the windows, he returned to the area and noticed two pictures on the wall where he had heard the laughter. They were of two teenage sisters dressed in Victorian clothing. He felt in some way that these two had returned as children, and when the vacationing janitor returned to work, the manager asked him if he had ever had any unusual encounters during the wee hours of the night. The janitor smiled and replied, you mean my girls. He went on to mention that besides the laughter, he often heard doors slam when they were already closed. The building houses an auditorium, and this janitor also mentioned that in the morning, he would find the same seats in the auditorium down, despite the fact that they were the kind that would spring up when no one was sitting in them. The manager, his curiosity peaked, looked for these occurrences on future night shifts and was not disappointed. One night, the manager brought his wife with him to the building. It had been raining, and he wanted to check the leaks. While on an upper floor, the wife veered off to use a restroom. She met her husband in one of the offices. They turned to leave, and her husband paused. She followed his gaze to the bottom of the door. They both saw shadows moving outside the door and the gap beneath the door. It wasn't just one or two shadows, but an entire parade of shadows that passed. When they walked out to look, no one was there. They determined no one else was in the building with them at all. And when they checked the parking lot, there were, in fact, no cars there either. So. If you're looking for a spooky encounter in Dover, this might be a good bet. I will say, it's a pretty cool-looking building. It's, yeah. like, right there over this, uh, again, this Cochico Mills, which is named after Cochico Creek, which more or less kind of almost sits almost on top of. So kind of a, one of those, you know, unique milling creek waterway kind of setup type deals. Cool building to look at. I've gotten out of the habit of sitting on this. And thank you for blessing me, Patrick. I don't have salt to my left shoulder. You can tell my allergy medicine has run off. <laughs> yep. It's like disappeared or it's making you go off? Oh, no, it finally ran out. 
He died soon afterward in a psychiatric hospital, though the exact cause of death is unknown. The Nancy Brooks scenic area was given Nancy's name to commemorate her death. Other nearby locations include Nancy Cascade, Nancy Pond, and Mount Nancy. They were all named in her honor. While the shrieks and the laughter of the forest have long been attributed to Nancy, the bizarre activity doesn't end there. Not far from the location of her death, residents of Knoxland Inn have also reported many mysterious happenings that may or may not be attributed to Nancy's fate. At minimum, Knoxland Inn pays tribute to the memory of Nancy. There is a great headstone in front of the parlor that says 1778, Nancy Barton, died in the snowstorm in pursuit of her faithless lover. On the border of the property flows the Nancy Brook, which flows from Nancy's home, top of Nancy's mountain. Now at the end, one couple took a nap in mid-afternoon when they woke to the name Abigail, being written in the steam on the mirror in the bathroom. This despite the fact that the bath and the shower had not been used for several hours. Another guest woke up one afternoon from a nap and noticed that someone, who quite supposedly had brought a fresh bunch of flowers into the room while he was dancing. He reports that he went to the bathroom and somebody had written happy anniversary on the mirror in the stick. He went back to the bedroom, but the flowers were gone. He turned back to the bathroom, the writing on the mirror had disappeared. The activity naturally did has never been caused for any great concern. The present seems friendly, and has rarely given anyone a notable scare. The charming fair response seems to be an ideal place for a delightfully spooky gentleman. That wasn't their anniversary? It didn't say it. Oh, okay. And uh, so. Patrick said, it's not rain. Uh, you might be hearing our HVAC system kicking out in the background. It sounds like a jet. <laughs> yeah, so it can be a little on the noisy side sometimes. I was hoping that it wouldn't actually uh, pick up on here, but... Well, it doesn't sound like a feeble laughter shot like mine does. <laughs> like, we just turned the heat on for the first time, and now we know what the heat sounds like. <laughs> like, I think I'm just getting spacey. <laughs> There's the cat. No, they'll yeah. uh, get used to it. Yeah. I mean, cats I mean, want to have to get used to it. today. Yeah. Not only to eat that. Oh, that's just true. We <laughs> did have eyes besides the dinner plate. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and yeah, uh, fire's dying down a little bit, but we've got a good bit of cold in there, so I think we're good for the moment. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, but, yeah. Yeah, we got some fire. Yeah. We got plenty of it. Yeah. We got plenty of it. Oh, and uh, a moment ago, that was a chocolate chip cookie that I was eating, the courtesy of uh, courtesy of Lee, and uh, it was delicious, by the way. Thank you. You can't go wrong with a good chocolate chip cookie. Oh, yeah. And that was, a, that was a good chocolate chip cookie. My, my, my old roommate, she sent me more exact um, here's today. <laughs> I just realized my instructions are like grandma's. <laughs> just that, like, yeah. Butter, butter, sugar, flour. Yeah. What, what quantities? What do I bake yeah. with that? What order do I mix the ingredients in? Yeah. Yeah. Detail. <laughs> so, and uh, if you do want one of your cookies, we don't need to hot them. Oh, no, no. I have so many at home. Okay. All right. Those are, <laughs> I won't complain. All right. Anyway, uh, so yes, uh, we're not done with uh, 
not done with the charming little inns yet. We're going to be moving just a little bit to the northwest where we arrive in the town of Littleton on the border with Vermont. Now, here you will find this charming little inn, the Beale House Inn, which was originally built as a farmhouse in 1883. Come 1933, Mrs. Beale turned the house into an inn, providing a foundation for the establishment that still resides there today. Over the years, the inn has had many owners, but it continues to offer guests a traditional New England welcome and hospitality. It was renovated extensively, and it has been given a facelift by the current owners. It now combines classic elegance with modern comforts. It is rumored that the haunting started happening at the inn in 2001, right about the time that the renovations began. Shocking. Renovations stirred up stirred up some stuff. Never heard of someone talk about yeah. that at all. Now, on one particular night, one of the owner's parents came over from Europe to spend a couple nights in her son and daughter's new establishment. Not, uh, not much is known about what the woman experienced, but she reported strange activity in her room during her stay. Another incident was when a housekeeper was painting when she felt some pressure on her hip. Thinking that it was one of the owners who went in and out of the tavern, she thought of moving to the other side, but terrifyingly, an unseen force held her there for a few seconds. Strange male voices have often been heard in the common room, although there is no one there or even, um, uh, no one, there is no one there, let alone anybody speaking. The current owners and the staff of the hotel believe that the ghosts are there because they love the place so much and that they stay to protect the inn and the guests. Sounds optimistic. I mean, you <laughs> You know, people can be drawn into haunted locations. People will go and seek out haunted hotels and haunted restaurants. But usually they're looking for a paranormal experience that's going to be maybe not, let's just say, not overtly negative. So I guess it's probably in their best interest to paint the hauntings in a positive light. Yeah, this is true. They do talk about them, which so many others do not. So, um, but anyways, the identity of the ghost supposedly haunting the hall is uncertain, but staff members have reported such spooky activity of the door being closed with great force, moving shadows and shapes in dimly lit corners of the basement, pillows floating above the furniture, noises and voices in unoccupied rooms, the objects that aren't in the same place as you left them, and while unsettling, the activity has never actually been harmful. So if you're up for a place to stay with some edgier spirits, this might be a place for you. You want me to keep going? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I just, I had to stand up for a minute. Yeah. And we're not quite done with haunted New Hampshire ends yet. We're going to come back to the center of the state where we find the village of Tilton and the appropriately named Tilton Inn. The original inn was built in 1875 and has hosted a few famous guests, including Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, which is a testament to just how lovely this place was and still is. The building has burnt down three times in the past, all within a span of approximately 100 years, separating them. One of these particular fires is said to have claimed the life of a 12-year-old girl named Laura, who is suspected to have never left. Her family lived there at the inn in the 1800s in what is now known as the Sanborn Room. Multiple guests have reported seeing a young girl in various rooms and hallways throughout the inn, 
This adventurous spirit has been reported in her own room as well as in the restaurant and in the entrance area. The fact that the ghost of a child shares the hotel with guests isn't terribly alarming, though. She's said to be nice and stays out of the way most of the time. But she can seem to cause mischief in the form of rattling glasses and knocking things off the shelves. Many have been drawn to the Tilton Inn due to the encounters with Laura. And one such individual who has some psychic abilities recounted his experience while visiting a few years ago. He recalled, the owner took me to the room where the little girl's spirit had been uh, seen most often. I sat quietly and asked whether anyone wanted to talk. Before I'd even finished, this girl came running in, bop, 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 up on the bed, turned around, and gave me a great big kid, cute kid smile. She had some sort of stuffed animal under her arm, and she said, I want you to know that I'm very happy here, which absolutely blew my mind. A kid who had burnt to death I figured would be traumatized, and I thought back to her, but you, you burnt to death. Oh, let's not get into that, she replied, and she showed me a happy picture. I'd seen a portrait of Laura in the lobby, a typical turn-of-the-century portrait in a formal dress, her hair carefully done. The girl who came running in had a one-piece jumper on that went down to her ankles. It was tan with a blue paisley design, and her hair was all combed out. The psychic went on, of course, it can be a challenge to discern the difference between a passing thought and actual contact with someone who has passed. I try to be objective. I say to myself, come on now, did you want that to happen? Did you make that happen? But everything about Laura was contrary to my preconceived ideas. Her hair, her attitude, I don't think I could have made it up. I was able to determine that the dress did fit, historically speaking, that there had been such a style. The fact that she was happy and not at all was, was not at all what I had expected. The owner suggested that perhaps Laura stays because she sees herself as a greeter. I don't know, but the experience stands out both because Laura was a memorable character and because the most common experience is usually momentary. Extended back-and-forth interactions like that are rare. While child ghosts can be quite frightening, it seems safe to say that Laura is a spirit that means well to those who cross her path. Maybe I can hang out with that big ghost. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so Lee, Lee had her uh, <laughs> an encounter with a, uh, a, a spooky kid ghost. And that was it. Uh, resides in a residence that was once built in 1812 by the 
within the Moore family. It has the distinction of being home to New Hampshire's Governor Samuel Dinsmore, who served from 1931 to 1933. Other families resided in the home as well until the 1980s when it was renovated into the restaurant space that is there today. Nearly every section of the restaurant is said to have a resident spirit. There's Jacob, or the man in the blue suit, who's often uh, seen in who is the most often seen, and though many have required hearing children's voices and seeing a young girl as well. Events include chairs and place settings moving on their own accord, smashing of expensive dishes and wine glasses, a man seen falling down the stairs, and seemingly playful stacks of decorative Christmas presents into towers, electrical problems, and a curious obsession with blonde women. Hey. <laughs> we love that here. We're down in here before we go. Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's be honest. I'm always like, 10 seconds away from dying. A number of women with their light-colored hair have reported feeling the presence and their jewelry has again and again become unfastened for apparently no reason. Paranormal investigations of the building have found several spirits that may have explained the various activities. It is believed that Jacob, known as the man in the blue suit, once lived in the home and suffered a fatal heart attack that sent him careening down the steep front staircase. A little blonde boy, identified as William, is told of being struck by a horse-drawn carriage and carried into the house where he died. The nameless girl, again, is there, too. The ghosts are mischievous but not malevolent, which has made them welcome members of the Wyndham family restaurant. Um... The owners embrace their co-spirited uh, co-inhabitants as they draw in the number of curiosity seekers, particularly during the, during the Halloween season. Jacob, William, and the little girl are so intriguing that the restaurant hosts a uh, popular series of Dining with the Dead events, where the presentation is served with a meal, and one uh, scheduled right before Halloween includes readings by well-known psychics for the participants. <coughs> Sounds like a good time. It is. Oh. Uh, what was I? I don't know either. My mind is wandering a little bit. The focus is not there. No, that, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Okay. It takes a few more weeks after. This, this is why we always use the script on these shows because, well... It keeps it from being a complete train wreck. Writing and editing these scripts alone takes a couple weeks, and let alone actually sitting down and trying to memorize them from one end to the other. Try that for the first one. It didn't go too well. It's definitely not like giving a tour. This is fun, but it's definitely not like giving a tour. So, uh, but anyways, so it's a money Monday. It's a money. It's a money. Mm. It's a Monday. Many minds are gone at this point. This is true. And it is a holiday week as well, which yeah. I, I know, speaking for myself, I'm basically already kind of checked yeah. out. Yeah. I do have to go to work tomorrow and Wednesday, but I'm just looking forward to the long weekend. I only have Thursday off. But you can go to work and drink coffee all day, though, and make coffee. I... Sorry, digressing again. Anyway, carrying on. So, moving along. So not far from Wyndham is the town of Hollis, home to Pine Hill Cemetery. 
However, this burial ground is known to many by another name, the Blood Cemetery. Nicknamed Blood Cemetery by the locals, it is the final resting place of more than 300 people, some of whom have been interred there since the 1700s. Along with reports of mysterious noises and floating orbs of light in the graveyard at night, Pine Hill Cemetery is said to host one specter who gives the cemetery its morbid nickname. Abel Blood, who was interred in 1867, right next to his late wife Betsy, was rumored to have been murdered, and his ghost supposedly haunts the cemetery, scaring visitors who come to his final resting place. His gravestone bears a carving of a hand pointing up to heaven, but it is said that if one visits the headstone at night, the hand may be pointing down. One paranormal investigator recounted his experience at the cemetery on a cool evening in the fall of 1990. He and a friend stopped along the roadside and walked into the cemetery around dusk and began looking around. They were there for about 20 minutes without seeing much. It was quiet at the time, almost an eerie quiet, but the longer they stayed, the more comfortable they became being there. They heard some rustling in the nearby woods that didn't amount to anything, and they continued to walk around reading and admiring the craftsmanship of the headstones from an earlier time. As the sun was setting, the investigator looked around and saw an engraving of a hand on one of the gravestones that had a finger pointed upwards. It didn't seem particularly remarkable at first, that is, until he turned around to look at his friend for a moment and then turned back to the stone with the hand, engraved hand on it. He noticed that the hand was leaking some sort of brownish, rust-colored fluid that was not there just seconds earlier. It had puddled up on the bottom of the egg-shaped recessed area around the hand and began to drip down the face of the headstone. The investigator was absolutely terrified. It wasn't that there was anything threatening about the situation, but it was completely and inexplicably um, it was, but it was completely and inexplicably chilling. After a moment, the investigator let adrenaline take over. He bolted from the cemetery, vaulted over the stone wall, and ran across the street and yelled for his friends to come to the car. The friends didn't hesitate to come running himself. While he had missed the bleeding gravestone, he knew that the investigator was not a person to easily frighten so badly. It only took a moment to fill in the friend on what was seen, and his natural curiosity made him want to go see the stone for himself. But the investigator was not up for a return to the cemetery himself that evening. While waiting by the car, he watched his friend return to the cemetery and climb the hill to the gravestone. He seemed to be in shock as he stared at the stone. All the investigator's friend could, all, all the investigator's friend could see was his friend. All the investigator. <sighs> Excuse me. I have a typo. All the investigator could see was his friend's silhouette in the fading light, just enough to realize that he wasn't moving. Right as the investigator was becoming more concerned for his friend's safety, he suddenly bolted from the cemetery back to the car. He tripped and fell on something and without a moment of pause jumped back to his feet and kept on running. When asked if he was okay after he fell, he said that someone or something had pushed him a hard push to his left shoulder, knocking him off his feet. Together they left the area and promised to never return. They stayed up all night discussing what had happened. It was only later that they learned the story that if they had lingered a little longer, they may have had the opportunity to witness the phenomena of the hand turning upside down. But they ultimately did not regret their decision to leave on that terrifying evening. 
Yeah, dripping blood on her, so I might be gone. Yeah. Now, <laughs> that said, you can't go to try and see this for yourself because this is one of those stories that became so well-known and drew so much attention that the gravestone was eventually replaced in October of 2007 to discourage future investigations. So. Is it in Zach Vegas? I don't know. I actually didn't check. <laughs> Chances are, though, if they are looking to try and put things to rest or hush-hush, so to speak, they probably did not want to give it to anybody that was going to advertise its existence. Oh, probably. Yeah. That, that man that was just wondering. Uh, he tried to get his hands on everything. All right. <laughs> so we're going to go visit another cemetery. This is the Gilson Road Cemetery in Nashua. Uh, Gilson Road Cemetery is said to be one of the creepiest and most haunted places in New Hampshire. Many sightings of misty people have been reported. Some have said that while standing at the edges of the cemetery, you'll feel as though you're being pushed back. A black hooded figure has been seen uh, reported a number of times, along with a woman in a white dress. Voices of people and inhumane creatures alike have been heard in the woods. Horses and dogs are known to stay away from the area. Strange fogs will roll through the cemetery at odd times. And homes near the cemetery, well, their glasses break. Cold spots are reported. And, uh, of course, doors are opened and closed for no reason. Kids at the nearby sports field have reported that they feel like they're being watched from the cemetery. One fact we do know is that, well, there's a child's grave with a perfectly round hole in it that is clearly something that was happened after the stone was engraved. Looking at the engraving is perfectly done. That's something that could have been done with the hole in it. And the text on the stone reads, In memory of Walter Gilson, son of Mr. Joseph and Mrs. Lucy Gilson, who died August 28, 1811, aged five years, eight months, and 25 days. The hole in the gravestone has its own set of theories about its existence. Some try to say it's just a bullet hole. Others will say it's part of a puzzle that leads to some treasure. And others still believe that it's a portal to the afterworld. The inexplicable nature of the hole in the stone allows the theories to run rampant, particularly in a cemetery where so much paranormal activity occurs. In one of the most recent encounters at the cemetery, a man was driving through it, and he sold an older man sitting on a gravestone. He initially kept driving, but something about that man quickly caused him to stop just a few hundred feet further on. He couldn't put a figure on it, but when he went back to check on the man, the man had vanished. In a brief moment between the initial drive-by and the driver's return, there was nowhere that the man could have gone, even at a full sprint. He had been chalked up to one of—he uh, has been chalked up to being amongst one of the many spirits and entities that linger in the Gilson Road Cemetery today. No, <clears throat> apparently uh, Chris or Sam Chase has uh, seen the, uh, the mill in Dover. Ah. Uh, driving by it on his way up to uh, Portland, Maine. We, we only drove through there the one time, and I didn't know what to look for. Yeah. We were just we were just going. We were just going. We were heading up to Searsport, Maine, and eventually up to Far Harbor. Yeah. So. <clears throat> 
Yep, just kind of driving through the Lincoln you missed section of uh, New Hampshire there. But uh, so, but yes. So, anyways, now uh, <clears throat> did mention uh, the that largest lake in all of New Hampshire there a little earlier, but it is one of many uh, smaller ponds and lakes that dot the mountains of New Hampshire. And in an isolated spot, not far from the border with Maine, we find Archer's Pond. Myth engulfs both Archer's Pond and the forest that surrounds it. Both stories are varied and range from flag deaths to misguided teenage love. One of the most pervasive is the story of Polly. Now, Polly lived in the woods with her husband, where they struggled to survive both the elements and their crushing poverty. Polly longed to buy a new pair of shoes to protect her feet from the snow, ice, and rocky terrain. Her husband refused, insisting they barely had funds to keep the couple alive. Despite his protests, Polly bought a cheap pair of shoes, and upon being discovered, was brutally decapitated by her husband. Gentlemen, sounds like a real winner. Uh, overcome by grief, the husband hanged himself exactly one week after having taken an axe to his wife's neck. Legend holds that the ghosts of both Polly and her murderous husband roamed the woods around Archer's Pond, never finding eternal rest. Polly has been remembered in the years since with a road named after her, Polly's Crossing Road. And she managed to land a real winner there. <laughs> now, the story of Polly and her husband is just the start of the tales about Archer's Pond and Polly's Crossing. Uh, and we have a selection of these rumored hauntings to share with you here. Now, these are just little snippets, little vignettes. So, first one, a man named Archie killed everyone in the small village surrounding Archer's Pond and threw the bodies into the pond. Archer then hanged himself from a rope outside his house. The rope still appears on the property today. Archie's ghostly apparition is seen walking around Archer's Pond with a shotgun in hand. Now, Number two, locals insist creatures exist beyond Archer's Pond in the hills, and a group of locals went out to disprove the legends in the 1950s. They parked on the bridge near Archer's Pond, and their car began shaking violently. They all ran out and vowed to never return again. Number three, you can see the lights of old lanterns in the woods near Archer's Pond and Polly's Crossing at night. That could just be... I think it's a car Yeah, or people actually out wandering in the woods. Searching. Searching. For things they should. Getting up to mischief. Anyways, number four. A boy named Andy Stockman went missing. His late 70s Ford Mustang II was found at Archer's Pond. His car had been set on fire. His body was found in Puffington Borough, New Hampshire, with a gunshot wound to his head. This rumor has been confirmed by several people who knew him, but unfortunately, the murder case remains unsolved. Rumor number five, a young teen couple that lived on opposite sides of the pond were sneaking out at night to meet each other at the edge of the pond. The girl's parents didn't like the boy and told them to stay away from each other. They met at least once a week and promised each other they were going to run away and get married. One night, the teenage girl's father noticed she was sneaking out and followed his daughter. When he found them together, he murdered the young boy. The young girl killed herself a week later. Their ghostly shadows can be seen sitting on the northern edge of the lake with their arms around each other. Number six, a man named Archer was walking on the frozen pond and fell through the ice. 
His body was never found. The townspeople named the pond after Archer. Number seven. In the 1800s, the Archer's Pond area residents all died from the plague. Smallpox, to be, uh, smallpox to be exact. Most of their bodies were buried in a cemetery on the south side of Archer's Pond. Today, only one headstone remains. There are old cellar holes in the south side of Archer's Pond as well. Other bodies may have been buried at the cemetery located to the intersection of Archer's Pond Road and Chickville Road in Ossipia. Two people at the Ossipia Town Hall have backed up the story about the village residents dying from smallpox and their bodies being buried in a cemetery there. So, all kinds of spooky stuff going on around Archer's Pond there. We're not there. reading that. Mm-hmm. No, I'm good. <laughs> but actually, that was our last story for tonight. Oh. So. Uh, but we are going to take a little hiatus because of the Key West trip coming up uh, next week. So we will not be back on the 7th. We'll be back on the 12th. Of December. Uh, sorry, the 5th is two weeks from yeah, today. Sorry, not the 5th, but we'll be back on the 12th. We'll be doing shows on the 12th and the 25th. Yeah. So, and both of them will be Christmas themed. I don't remember the order of them. Oh, uh, sorry. First. We'll figure it out. Either way, there's going to be Victorian ghost stories where we will uh, that we will go ahead and we'll um, pull up yeah, from uh, days of yore, and uh, then we will have the uh, ghost stories that are actually surround the Christmas holiday. So yeah, the day whole, after yeah, 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 we'll be on the air the day after Christmas, so you can spend a, uh, the first of your 12 days of Christmas with us, or is yeah. it technically second? Second, second, second day. But, yeah, so, anyway, so, yeah, appreciate you all tuning in and joining us this evening, and uh, hope that you all will have a wonderful Thanksgiving here this yeah. week, um, whether you're traveling to see friends or you're just kind of staying at home. Uh, enjoy the holiday, be safe, and, uh, yeah. We'll Don't be, overindulge too much. Yeah, yeah, that's so easy to do. So easy to do. Happy Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we were just talking about that earlier, how, like, Halloween just was, like, a blink of the eye ago. So it seems, I mean, granted, it, it was three weeks ago today, but it was three it weeks ago It feels a today. long, long time ago uh, already. Uh, but, yeah, so, so we will see you all in three weeks, and we hope you are safe and happy this next holiday. Yeah. Did you just question and yes yes uh, we will be uh, for 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 Sam Chase here our national nightmares friend we will be uh, uh, on that meeting tomorrow evening so we will see you there yes but um and anybody else if you not not, not for the meeting per se but if you ever want to go ahead and drop us a line we're always happy to hear from you you can send us a note via messenger and all that good stuff yep and if you're in DC and you want to go tour you need to go check out national nightmares Yep, National Nightmares LLC. You can find them on Facebook, and they got their web. Uh, he has his website, but uh, definitely the uh, the gentleman to go with if you want to have a ghost tour in the nation's capital. Oh. Anyways, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. No, really. No. No. Hmm? You've got nothing going on. Yeah. No, yeah. no, it's nice. It's kind of nice and slow down. We did uh, do Comic Con this past Saturday, and I had, had a good time there. So. We will probably plan on doing that again uh, at a future date, whenever uh, the next one is. So, um, I don't know. He doesn't have an exact schedule. Yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Day we'll to time. Days are and, yeah. Yeah. If we haven't gotten already 
scheduled for something else. Yes. Mm-hmm. We do have um we do have some special events coming up. We're just confirming the last few yeah. dates with partners. Yeah, but nothing nothing immediate in the immediate future aside from us doing the Key West thing. Yeah. Um so yeah. Won't miss anything over the next few weeks. Um but yeah. We'll uh, look forward to talking to you again in just a few weeks' time. And in the meantime, uh, stay spooky, cheers, and y'all have a good night. Good night. Oh, I'm waiting. <laughs> because you can't.